So the title of this message tonight, if you're taking notes, is this, the world's way is the wrong way. Yeah, you know that's right. Now, as we get ready to set this message up, as you're getting your notes ready, as you're settling into your seat, I'll remind you uh, again what I talked about last week in case you're new to church. Maybe this is your first night or you've only been coming for a couple weeks maybe. I want you to know that this church is responsive because we know that God has done something real in our lives. Uh, The Spirit of God is alive in us as followers of Jesus, and so this church is alive, and you might notice it feels alive because we believe that when the word of God is being preached to us, that we can respond to it, Uh, we can respond and affirm what God is saying to our hearts. So you'll hear the people in this room saying things like, amen, Amen. come on, on. that's good, good. preach that, that. Mm mm-hmm. All appropriate, all appropriate responses. So I'm going to invite you just to, to, wel- to jump on into that. I welcome you to jump in on that train, get on the wagon. You're going to find it feels so good to participate in what God is doing. Amen? All right, you're off to a good start. Now, this message is going to be unusually intense because our passage that we're studying tonight is intense. That's all right. We embrace intense moments in Scripture because when God convicts us through his word, it allows us to change and become more like Jesus, and that ultimately leads to our blessing. So we don't run away from intense moments of confrontation, especially when it comes from the word of God, when it comes for our benefit, because God loves us, all right? So we can be responsive and say amen even in an intense moment. Amen? All right, good. All right, here we go. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. We'll start with verses one through three. It says this, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong, and you want only what will give you pleasure. Now, Grandpa James, when he wrote this passage, it was to the church in Jerusalem, and people were actually fighting in the church. They were fighting and quarreling, and historians believe, most theologians believe, that there were people actually killing each other. Now, this actually makes sense because there was a sect of the Jewish faith, they were called zealots, and they were known to become violent or militaristic in order to get what they wanted. So here we have new Christians in the church, and there were fights breaking out in the church foyer over who was going to lead the Sunday school class, who was going to have the say in how things should be done. Now, I know that some churches are messed up in this world today, but I'm grateful that at this church is very healthy. People are loving. They get along. So there aren't little groups in the church fighting with each other. You know, I don't spend time dealing with people fighting with each other. I'm so grateful for that. Aren't you grateful that you don't go to a church where people are getting shanked in the parking lot over who's going to lead worship? You know, I know I am. I am so happy and grateful for that. So we're not really fighting with each other, but there is an inner struggle, an inner war going on that James talks about, and it does apply to us in our situation today. We fight against the evil desires warring within us. You were hardwired from birth to give in to evil desires. Do you know that? Some of you make the mistake because children are cute and they look innocent and so sweet and so soft and they smell so good. These old babies up here, you think, well, they're innocent. They got to be they got to be good, right? They're good, but they're not. The Bible says that no one is good. 
No one is righteous, not even one. That means little cute little babies, right? They're little sinners. <laughs> They're just cuter than average, right? No one had to teach your kids to defy you, to lie to you, or to do their own thing, right? They are just little adorable sinners. So we know it's true. We are naturally inherently sinful is what the Bible says. And then this whole world that we live in, it encourages us to give in to our evil desires. The world says this, if it feels good, do it. The world says this, you deserve to be happy. The world says, follow your heart. The problem is that our heart is inherently Wicked and sinful. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says this. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? I mean, how much more intense can we get within that? You know, our heart will get us into a lot of trouble, won't it? We can't trust our heart. It's inherently wicked and sinful. Now, fortunately, when we become followers of Christ, God transforms our heart, and so we start to desire things that God finds pleasing, and so it changes us, but, but naturally, we are, we are evil in our desires. We have wicked desires. We are sinful. Following your heart can lead you right off the edge of a cliff, plummeting to your death. Doing what feels good might not be good for someone else. Do you know that Satan will happily trade you short-term happiness in exchange for long-term destruction. I've met a lot of people, a lot of guys, a lot of guys who said, yeah, I lost my wife, lost custody of my kids, lost my house, lost my savings. What happened? I followed my heart and did what felt good. Yeah, your heart will get you into trouble. In fact, Satan will help you to feel good now if it'll allow him to destroy you later. So in James 4, verse 2, we're going to go on, and we're going to read about this, but I want to give you kind of a summary of what this passage is saying. It's saying, don't follow your heart. Follow God's heart. God's heart will lead you into what is good. So we're going to learn more about that. It says this in verse 2, you want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Okay, so when we see this word scheme, it shows me, it highlights that we're not talking about everyday ongoing struggles with sin that we have where you have a bad moment and you lost your temper and you're like, I blew it, I need to ask for forgiveness. Or you, know, you stubbed your toe and, and you let out a string of swear words. Like, it's not talking about that. I mean, those things aren't good, but this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about intentional, willful, ongoing, unrepentant sin. It's scheming, scheming, intentional sin. Now, when we have those ongoing moments of, of sin where we... We blow it. You know, the way to handle that is to just dive into God's grace head first. You know that God has already forgiven you through Jesus, so you can, I think, handle that by saying, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me, and you can move on with your day and go forward knowing God loves me. But when we have ongoing, willful, unrepentant sin in our lives, this is a serious issue that James warns us about, and we have to deal with it. This is the kind of thing that Christians, they justify sometimes. Well, my situation... Or they try to hide it. It's the kind of thing that you think, well, if people only knew what I was doing in private, they would not be very welcoming to me. We're going to talk about this. So he says, you scheme and you kill. You scheme and you kill. Now, a lot of you are saying, well, I don't kill. I haven't killed anyone. That's the one commandment I haven't broken. <laughs> so one out of 10, but that's my one. <laughs> you know. But here's the thing. We do. 
We do. Sin kills. Sin kills. I, I want to take this big concept and make it very simple. Sin kills. We scheme and kill whenever we act on evil de- desires warring within us. How many have schemed to have an affair and killed their marriage? How many have schemed to hide a drug addiction and killed the dreams of their family? How many have schemed to cheat and killed their integrity? Or schemed to watch and hide a pornography addiction and kill the innocence and dignity of another human being? How many have schemed in the church to rob God of tithes and offerings and killed the blessing that God had for them? Oh, you can still say amen. It's okay. Uh, how, you're like, man, I wish I didn't come to church tonight. It's okay. You're here now. So this, let's roll with it. When we scheme and hide our sin, we kill our integrity, we kill our joy, we kill our sensitivity to the Holy Spirit speaking into our heart, and ultimately, if we continue on long enough, we risk the danger of killing our relationship with Jesus. That's why 1 Peter 2.11 says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. These sinful desires, these things you, you wrestle with, and you, oh man, it'd just be so much easier if I could give in. If I could just do it, I would feel so much better. I, I know I shouldn't, but it feels good. Look, the Bible says it's warring against your soul. It's a trap. So Peter repeats the words of James. Peter and James were friends. And we, we learn here that there's always collateral damage in war. We hurt ourselves and we hurt others. These evil desires, they war against our soul. So Peter encourages us to fight against these evil desires, to flee from these evil desires, but don't frolic with them. Don't go on frolicking with these little evil desires, like cute little house pets that you keep. That's what a lot of Christians do. They keep these little pet sins in, locked up in little cages in their house, and they think, well, it's cute. It's manageable. I can, I can keep it under control. You take it out of the cage sometimes, and you play with it. Problem is, it's a lion, and if you keep feeding it, it'll grow up and eat you. I watch these nature shows where a dude goes out in the wilderness and lives with grizzly bears. And what happens? It's like the same story again and again. He gets eaten. And I'll just tell you right now, I never feel bad for that guy. Ever. Even, one, even a little bit. I'm like, you had it coming, bro. You sleep with Gary the grizzly bear. He's going to eat you. Eventually, he'll have a bad day or he'll be hungry and you're going to get eaten. If you keep sin around in your household, eventually it will grow to the point that it will eat someone. So we have to be on guard. James says you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. So there are things we want, but I see here in this passage there are three problems with how we go about trying to get the things that we want. The first problem is we don't ask. Sometimes you just don't ask. There's something that you want, something that you need, but you don't ask God. It's crazy to me how we'll need something or want something, and then it will dawn on us, oh, wait, maybe I should ask the all-powerful creator of the universe who loves me and calls me his child. The second problem is we do ask without first asking God. Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. See, a lot of us, we'll pray and we'll tell God what we want and we'll tell God what we need, but we don't stop to ask him, wait, what is your will for my life, Lord? A lot of you pray like Spice Girls. You say, God, I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. <laughs> and you think God's in heaven like, tell me what you want, what you really, really want. 
And what he wants you to pray is, Lord, what is your will for my life? So it's okay to ask for what you want, but you should pray, God, here is what I want if it's your will. Lord, here is what I want, but I want to be in your will, and I want it according to your timing in the right time, because you know the right thing in the wrong time is the wrong thing. Here's a third problem. We do ask, but with selfish motives, so we don't get it. So people will pray, Lord, I need more money. You know, it's okay. A lot of people, they, they feel like they need more money, but it's not so they can be generous. It's not so that... It's not so they can get out of the problem that they're in. They just want to go on living the lifestyle that they're living. And honestly, there's a lot of Christians in this room right now. You'd have a lot more money if you would pray, God, help me to be self-disciplined enough to stick to the budget that I created. God, help me to live according to your word as I handle my finances. You find out God will give you more money real quick. People pray, Lord, I, I want to be a leader, but not so I can serve others because I, I really want to just feel important. So if you pray, God, help me to have the heart of a servant, you'll find yourself in leadership positions really quickly. I know guys in the church who'll pray, God, I want a wife. Lord, I need a wife. Why? Because you want someone to sleep with. But you should pray, God, help me to become a righteous man. Because when you become a righteous man, God will then bring you the right woman. If he does it before you become a righteous man, you're just going to mess it up. Now, before all you ladies start amening too loud, I know a lot of ladies who are like, God, I need a husband. I want a husband, right? And it's because you don't want to be the only one your age that's not married, and I get it. But listen, you need to pray, God, help me to find my identity only in Christ. Because if you don't have your identity founded in Christ, when you do get a husband, you'll grow to hate him. Because he won't satisfy you either. So we need to pray, and we need to pray with the right motives according to the will of God. Instead of asking God to please you, ask God to help you please him. Because when your desires are the desires of God, ultimately he will give you the desires of your heart. When you decide to put your faith in Jesus and follow him, you're actually deciding to please God before you please yourself. But what you'll find is the closer you get to Jesus, his desires will become your desires. And so you, when you read that passage, God will give you the desires of your heart. Yeah, he will, because he wants to give you the desires of your heart when your desires are his desires. So pray, God, help me to please you. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So the world, our enemy, the devil, he tries to entice us away from the Lord with worldly pleasures. Hey, this feels good. You'll have a good time. This will soothe your aches. This will satisfy your desire. This will make you feel wanted. And, and he tries to entice us away from God. And, and so many of us, we give into that enticement and we, we kind of follow that bait, which is designed to lead us into death and destruction. But what Psalm shows us right there is that the closer we get to Jesus, we discover fullness of joy because the love of God is what allows us to feel joy. So the closer you get to Jesus, who is the manifested love of God, the more the fullness of joy will come into your life. And so you'll realize that at the right hand of God, in Jesus Christ, are pleasures forevermore. The closer you get to him, the more God's pleasures become your pleasures. So you'll start to see, man, what the world has to offer is nothing compared to what Jesus offers. Psalm 4, verse 4, it gets intense now. You're like, it's now going to get intense? Yes. It says, you adulterers, 
Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. Look, if the Bible says, I say it again, that's like your mom saying, don't make me tell you again, but a hundred times more. <laughs> like, this is serious. I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him, and he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So here we see this very strong statement, don't you realize that being a friend of the world makes you an enemy of God? And so maybe you're wondering, what is the world? I want to explain, in the Bible, when the word world is used, there's two different meanings that are used depending on the context. Okay, so sometimes when the Bible uses the word world, it means everything in God's creation, everyone who exists. For example, for God so loved the world. That's everyone. God loves everyone. He cares about everyone, even people who don't love him. But then in this context, in this passage, the world is all that is ungodly. Everything that is unrighteous, ungodly, unpleasing to him, is the world. Before you gave your life to Jesus Christ as a Christian, for those of you who have, you were a citizen of the world. You were ungodly and unrighteous in the sight of God. You made worldly choices. You did things that you are not proud of that were worldly. So what James is saying that if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. He warns us very strongly. So we're going to have a lot of choices as we go through life. And as Christians, obviously, we want to please God. And so some choices are very easy. They're clear. They're black and white, good and bad. And then there are some things where you're maybe unsure, and you'll ask yourself, is this okay? Is this good? Is this allowable? A lot of times as a pastor, I get asked questions like, hey, pastor, am I allowed to do this? So I'm going to give you some guidance. Uh, you'll ask this question with every choice you make. Is it moral, amoral, or immoral? Is it moral amoral or immoral. I'll explain the difference. Something that is moral in this context is something that is godly, something that is good. So anything that looks like Jesus is moral, being generous, taking care of the poor, protecting the weak, uh, being responsible for your family, loving one another, forgiving one another. I mean, that's moral behavior. That is always good. No questions asked. Do it. Then there is a lot of stuff that is amoral, Amoral. It means it's not inherently good or bad, but depending on how you use it, it can be good or bad. So I'll give you some examples. Alcohol is amoral. You can use it for good and cleanse a wound, or you can use it for evil and get drunk off your butt. Here's another example. Dancing is amoral. You can use it for good. It can be beautiful. It can be romantic, or it can be explicit and seductive. But if you want to be seductive and dance in your marriage, I'm not going to judge that. You know, get it on. <laughs> but that, that's between you and your spouse. Here's another example. Like television and movies. It can be good, moving, tell beautiful stories, or it can pollute our hearts. Sex can be very good if it's used within the construct of marriage as the Bible sets it out between a man and a woman. Or outside of that construct... It will destroy us and cause us a lot of pain and heartache. So 
what we need to watch out for is becoming legalistic. Historically, a lot of Christians have been legalistic and they opposed things that were actually amoral. They could go either way. And so anything that was fun, they were against, right? And that's the kind of church that some of you grew up in. But we have to be careful about what we choose to do. We don't want to be legalistic, but we want to use wisdom and how we use these things that could be good or bad. We want to use them according to the way that God intended. Food is another thing. It can be good, it can be delicious, but some people, they abuse it and they have problems with it. It can go either way. Here's what we need to be careful of. John Wesley said this, what one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. This is something you have to think about because it's very easy for our moral standard to degrade over time. And you just kind of get this message, well, it's not that bad. It's not really that big of a deal. Everyone is watching this. Everyone is doing this. Don't be so old-fashioned. But you see, if you start to accept it, the next generation will completely embrace it and not even question it. If you start to have the attitude like, well, I don't need to go to church every week. I mean, that's kind of crazy. I'll just go most of the time. I'll go more often than not. By the time your kids get to the age where they can decide what to do, they won't even consider having a relationship with Jesus. What one generation tolerates, the next generation embraces. A lot of you, your parents grew up during the sexual revolution, and now today we're living in the age of the sexual self-destruction. So there's amoral things, and then there are immoral, clearly wrong choices, being deceitful, greedy, drunkenness, sexual immorality. These are things that even though the Bible shows us they're clearly wrong, they're immoral, the world actually accepts and celebrates immoral choices today. The world says if you can cheat someone and get away with it, good for you. The world says if it feels good, do it, sleep with whoever or whatever you want. The world says drunkenness is just a good way to blow off steam and have fun with your friends. So James 4, verse 4 warns us, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? So we have to think as Christians, are we living in a way that it looks like we're actually still friends with the world? Now, you got to realize that this is written, this message tonight is for Christians. It's for believers, if you're not a Christian and you're here tonight, uh, this isn't for you, really. Your message is this, accept Jesus and ask for the forgiveness of your sins. This message is talking to Christians who are living in unrepentant, ongoing, willful, and deliberate sin. James is saying, you look like the people who love the world. So some Christians, I think you do love Jesus sincerely with your heart, but then there are certain areas of your life that you refuse to surrender to God. So you'll say, I know what the Bible says, but, and then you have justifications. I know what the Bible says, but I can't give this up and be happy. I mean, come on, if I, if I don't go out and party with my friends, they'll think I'm weird, and then I won't have any friends. So, you know, we'll get drunk, but we'll have a designated driver. It's not that big of a deal. Everybody does it. I, says, I know what the Bible says, but I will not become financially generous because I don't really tr trust churches and God knows I don't have enough, and someday when I have more, then I'll do it. This is worldly thinking. This is how the world thinks. The world says, I know the Bible says, but my situation is too complicated, so I'm going to keep living with my boyfriend and sleeping with my girlfriend. And I know, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I know some of you, you don't even know that this is not okay. Because <laughs> like, the world says that this is the logical progression of relationships, that you date, and then you move in together, and then maybe you get married after you have kids, and you decide you're going to stay together. 
But let me, let me just clear this up because I want to make sure we all are on the same page. The Bible shows us that the way we go through this process is you can date and then you get married and then you have sex and then you have kids and you don't got to worry about who's the daddy, who's the mom. You know who the daddy is, right? So I'm just going to help you out, right? If you're living with someone you're not married to, biblically, you have two options. Get married or move out. All right, now... And I'm just going to explain it because I know that there's a lot of confusion for some people. People will say like, well, okay, well, we'll start planning a wedding. No, 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 no. Don't plan a wedding. You can have a big party later. Go to the courthouse this week. Go get a marriage license. Bring it to the church. One of our pastors will marry you and you can stop living in sin. I know a lot of you are like, well, it's complicated. You know, we've got kids. No. You know what? Sin got you into this complicated situation. You know what is simple? Doing what God says. If you'll obey God and do what he says, you can trust that he will bless you. You'll say things like, well, we'll just stop having sex. Okay. (laughs) The Bible says flee from sexual temptation, not live with sexual temptation. It might seem extreme, but I think it's more extreme to call yourself a Christian, but continue living like the world, like an enemy of God. James says, do you think the scriptures have no meaning? That's kind of like saying, do you think God gave you the Bible just to fill up space on your bookshelf? He means what he says. He means what he says. God didn't give us his word so that we would have a list of rules to ruin our fun. He gave us his word because he is deeply concerned for you and your well-being. First, he wants you to be saved. And second, he wants you to be good. He wants you to do good, not what seems good, not what feels good, but what is good according to him. So you can write this down. God wants you to be healthy, whole, and holy. God wants you to be healthy, whole, and holy. He wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be protected from harm. How many of you realize, you know now, that a lot of the sinful choices we make end up physically hurting us and causing us pain? People die from drunk driving, They get sexually transmitted disease from promiscuous living. They have liver failure from ongoing alcohol addictions. I mean, this is a couple examples. I could go on and on and on. God tells us in his word how to live. And it's remarkable how thousands of years ago, when the word of God was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, before medical science developed to the point it's at today, God showed us how to live in a way that thousands of years later, science would confirm is the healthiest way to live. So God says, don't stick those scissors in the outlet, son. I know they fit, but it's going to hurt you. God wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be whole, which means he wants you to be satisfied and content. He wants you to be joyful and have what you need. A lot of you have chased after other things, trying to make yourself satisfied. And what it has done is broken you in your life. God wants you to be whole. And he wants you to be holy. To be holy is to be set apart. It's to be righteous in the eyes of God. So when you place your faith in Jesus, the Bible says that you are made holy before God. And this is the word, the word saint, where it comes from. It's to be sanctified, it's to be made holy, it's to be set apart. So if you're a Christ follower, listen, you're a saint. You are set apart and holy. Some of you are like, I knew I was a saint. <sighs> I gotta 
felt pretty good. Yeah, you're probably struggling with pride too. No, you're a saint. According to the Bible, you're a saint. It's true. You're set apart. So God wants you to act like it. And you're set apart instantly when you're saved. But the more you grow in your faith and become more like Jesus, you become increasingly sanctified. You become more like Jesus. You become holier. And it doesn't earn favor with God, but it blesses you in your life. He wants to be healthy, whole, and holy, set apart and different from the world. The Old Testament prophets compared our relationship with God to a marriage relationship. That's why James said, you adulterers, because God is passionate that we would be faithful to him. So when James says, you adulterous people, this is the most strongly worded call to repentance anywhere in the New Testament. This is like echoing the Old Testament prophets who called out the children of Israel when they were worshiping idols. They said, you're adulterous people. That's what James is saying. You're adulterous people. When you accept Jesus and you call yourself a Christian, but then you go on living the same worldly lifestyle with the same worldly perspective. We just have to, we have to recognize that God the Father did not give his only beloved son to die in our place on the cross so that we could go on living like we never heard the gospel. Jesus died in our place to pay the price for our sins. So just, let's think about that. Our sins killed Jesus. So if we go on living in willful sin like it's no big deal, we're acting like the death of Jesus was no big deal. And if that idea doesn't bother you, then you're probably not a Christian. I'll just propose to you. May you possibly not be saved like, I don't know. I can't see into your heart. I can't judge your heart. That's between you and God. God judges our hearts. But I would propose that if you don't feel bothered by ongoing, willful, unrepentant sin that grieves the heart of God, it might be the sign that there's a problem. This message is for Christians. It's for believers. And I want you to understand that the world's way is the wrong way. And this week, there were six specific areas that I felt that the Holy Spirit impressed upon me to mention and highlight for our church. And I don't know what your issues are. I didn't hack into your email account, okay? None of y'all's wives called me this week and asked you to slip you into my sermon anywhere. But God knows what we're dealing with, and so I want to mention these six specific areas. First is pornography. In our nation, there are many men who are struggling and wrestling with an ongoing addiction to pornography. It's so readily available and easily accessible that many men struggle with it more so than ever before, and women struggle with this as well. Pornography is wrong, and you know it's wrong in your spirit, so I don't have to convince you that it's wrong, but it will hurt you. It rewires your brain and the pathways of pleasure in your brain. It makes it impossible to have a fulfilling sexual relationship with your spouse. So if you're struggling and trapped in bondage to pornography, God wants to set you free from that. The second is jealousy. There are people in the church who struggle with envy. They're jealous of what other people have that they don't have. And so they go out of their way. They talk bad about people who have things that they don't have. Well, she only has that because that. And they spend money they don't have to get stuff that they don't really need because they're jealous. The third is sex outside of marriage. We know that inside of the concept of marriage, sex is a gift. But outside of marriage between a man and a woman, sex or any sexual activity is sinful. The fourth is robbing God of tithes and offerings. There, and I'm not talking to the Christian you got saved five minutes ago and you're like, yo, what's a tithe? 
I'm talking to the person you've heard three to three dozen sermons on tithing and giving according to the scriptures, and you refuse to submit your finances to God. And it's either out of fear because you don't trust that God will take care of you, or it's out of selfishness because you're greedy, or it's out of rebellion, and you say, I know what God says, but I'm not doing that. You need to know that you're not just robbing God of what's his, you're robbing yourself of the blessing that God wants to give you. Man, you're like, I really wish I didn't come to church tonight. The fifth area is unforgiveness. Some of you have been holding someone in bondage in your heart who hurt you or hurt someone that you love, and you refuse to forgive them. You know that Jesus said, if you want your Father in heaven to forgive you, you must forgive one another, but you have not even tried to extend forgiveness. I know it's hard to forgive someone who hurts you, and it starts like this. God, I want to forgive, but I can't. I'm asking for your help. Help me to forgive. And then the last area is doubting God's goodness. This is a serious sin. And maybe something happened to you or didn't happen for you, and you've been walking around saying, yeah, God's not really good. God doesn't really love me. How could God let this happen? And here's what God says. Who are you to question my goodness? Who are you to judge me? God says, I am only good. Doubting God's goodness is a problem. So if you're going the wrong way, then turn around. That's what repentance is. It's turning away from sin. We're gonna repent at the end of this message. We're gonna have an opportunity to reflect and repent. Man, some of you, you're like, man, I don't really know if any of these six things apply to me. Okay, I'm not trying to put anything on you, but we're gonna have an opportunity for reflection and repentance because God wants us to be healthy and whole and holy. Some of you feel powerless to overcome these evil desires and resist them. You might feel ashamed because of what you've struggled with. I want you to know you do not need to feel ashamed. There is no shame for believers in Jesus. We have hope through Jesus, and there's hope in this passage. There's encouragement and grace right in this passage. In the midst of this intense call to repentance, we see grace. It's said that God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, the people that say, I don't have a problem, but he gives grace to the humble. So this is not a message of condemnation, but a call to repentance. And here's what it looks like, James 4, 7. So it says, so humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. This is saying that we should feel remorseful because we know that our sin grieves the heart of God. So remorse is saying, God, your grief has become my grief. But then look, there's encouragement in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. He will lift you up in honor. So your choice is to go on sinning, which is committing spiritual adultery against God, or to humble yourself and repent. And listen, it's not too late. You haven't gone too far. You haven't done anything that's too bad for God to forgive you. There is no sin that you can commit that is too big for God's grace to forgive. So we're gonna talk about repentance. How do you repent? Well, this passage teaches us how to repent. First, humble yourself. Humble yourself means admit that you're wrong, admit that there's something in your life that is not right, and then say, God, I know that I need your help to overcome this evil desire. I can't do it on my own. Lord, I need your help. 
Second, turn away from sin. Turn away. Turn away. That means you reject the sin that you were previously embracing. That involves remorse and saying, God, I know that this sin grieves your heart. I'm turning away from sin. Turning away from sin means resist the devil and he will flee from you. Instead of saying, yeah, devil, give me some more. You say, no, no, no. I don't want to do that anymore. I'm turning away from sin. And then three, come close to God. I turn away from sin and I go to God. I come close to God. And the Bible says that you don't have to chase after God. He's not running away from you like you got to catch me you got to prove yourself for a few months that you're really sorry and then I'll, I'll stop and let you catch up no it says come close to God and he will come close to you the moment that you turn away from sin and come close to God he is right there ready to embrace you and pick a right back up where he wanted to with you so come close to God he's not hiding from you and then four be lifted up in honor be li- this is the step that some Christians forget. They are sorry for their sin. They feel remorse in their heart. And then they plunge themselves into depression and self-loathing. I'm so bad. God could never love me. I'm a terrible Christian. No. Nah. The Bible says, humble yourselves before the Lord. Come close to God and he will lift you up in honor. He will lift you up. There is no fall too hard that God cannot lift you up. There's no sin so great that the blood of Jesus will not cover it. If you humble yourself and you lower yourself before God in the posture of repentance, God will not just forgive you, but he will lift you up in honor. He will honor you the way that he honors Jesus because Jesus is in you. Do you understand what I'm saying? Verse 10, I love it. It said, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. So that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to do something different than what we normally do. We're gonna stop now and we're gonna take time to reflect and allow the Holy Spirit to speak into our lives. And I want you just to all listen to what God says to you. Maybe you're not a believer and during this time, you need to accept Jesus and repent of your sins and ask God to become the Lord of your life. But otherwise, if you're a believer, I want you just to humble yourself before God during this time to be quiet and listen to his voice. That's what we're gonna do right now. So let's pray.